Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for um, the joy that only you can provide, God. I pray you would show us that this morning. Um, give us uh, the ability to see you at work in our lives today as well as in the past, and let us look forward with promise to the future, God. We just give you the right to rule in our hearts, give you the right to rule in this place, and we just invite you in, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, for those of y'all who don't know, I'm Andrew Brewer. I'm a part of the teaching team here at Grace, and I also uh, have the privilege of leading the Grace student group every Wednesday night. Um, it's a lot of fun, uh, and I'm just I'm thrilled to be here with you this morning. Um, so it's a big week for me, okay? In six days, I turn 30 years old. I mean, yeah, crazy, right? So, and I know some of y'all are probably thinking, what in the world? They let a 20-something-year-old up here to talk? Uh, <laughs> that's fine. It's fine if y'all feel that way. If it makes you feel better, you can pretty much think of me as in my 30s, because I only have six days to go. Um, as one is prone to do with these milestones in your life, these major birthdays, life events, um, it's, it's always fun to kind of reflect back on stuff you've learned, things you've experienced. Um, especially for me, it just feels like yesterday I was 20 and in college, and now I'm almost 30, and a lot's happened in that period of time. You know, and the things that I think about when I think about the last 10 years especially is the good things, the exciting things, the joyful things. I've had the opportunity to stand at the altar with my bride who's sitting over here, and we've been married for um, a number of years, and then I've had the opportunity to hold my two boys who were born, holding them for the first time. For those of y'all who have had children, it's the most amazing experience. It's it's unreal. I've been able to go on adventures with friends and family to places like the Czech Republic and Hungary and Austria, to Jamaica, to places across the U.S., and I've just had some highlight experiences. I mean, that's exactly what they are, right? The types of things that we would share on our Facebook page, that we say, man, look at the cool stuff that's happening in my life. But at the same time, if I'm honest, that's not real life. At least it's not all of what real life is. It's the highlight reel. That's exactly what it is. But at the same time, if I look back on the past 10 years, I've had some pretty low lights too. I've seen depression wreak havoc. I've seen sickness and disease um, come at friends and family. I've had an uh, experience of one of my children being diagnosed with special needs and the grieving process that goes along with that, along with a number of other just challenges that come with being a human in this world, right? And of course, if I were to turn my life into a movie, you know, I would choose to put all those highlights on that main disc. Not that we buy DVDs anymore, but let's just pretend like we do. Um, I would put all my highlights on that main disc. That would be the primary movie, right? And all those lowlights, I'd, I'd probably dump them off into that bonus disc that nobody watches as like deleted scenes or bloopers or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, you just don't really want to go there. We like to go to the happy. We like to go to the places that make us feel good. And that's exactly what I want to encourage us not to jump straight to today. Today we're presented with a text from Ezekiel 37. And it's going to be our temptation to read it and go straight to the stuff that makes us feel good. Straight to the promises of deliverance and joy and happiness and all those good things. All that hope. But I want to be intentional today about slowing down 
and trying to see the full journey, the full experience that Ezekiel is going to take us on today through this text. So let's jump in to the text. So it's Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1. It reads, The hand of the Lord was on me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and placed me in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. He made me walk all around among them. I realized there were great, a great many bones in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said to him, Sovereign Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and tell them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Look, I am about to infuse breath into you and you will live. I will put tendons on you and muscles over you and will cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will live. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. There was a sound when I prophesied. I heard a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. As I watched, I saw the tendons on them. Then muscles appeared, and skin covered them from above, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these corpses so that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and the breath came into them. They lived and stood on their feet, an extremely great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are all the house of Israel. Look, they are saying, our bones are dry, our hope has perished, we are cut off. Now that's not where this passage ends today, but I want to stop here because there's a lot of stuff in this particular portion and it's kind of a natural break in the passage. Um, first of all, I just want to kind of address the elephant in the room. This is weird, right? I mean, we've got what seems to be a, a vision of Ezekiel just kind of being lifted up and placed in another spot. And then you've got bones that are like deader than dead. And they come back together and they're all of a sudden alive again. I mean, let's just embrace the weirdness <laughs> together. And, and let's be okay with it being a little bit weird. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important, before we go any further, to understand the context in which this vision was being given. So Ezekiel was a prophet. He's one of the major prophets in the Bible. And this whole thing is taking place during uh, the Babylonian captivity, which if y'all remember from last week when John was talking, that's the same captivity that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all in whenever they were thrown into the fire and fed to the lion's den and all that. That's where we're at still today. That's who Ezekiel is talking to are these people who are in this Babylonian captivity. So that being said, it's important that we understand how this text would have been understood and heard by these people. Because for us in 21st century America, we can read it, and I was talking to my wife about this, lots of times we just take these stories at face value and just kind of move on, right? And we just think, oh, that's kind of cool. But we don't really understand what's there, what the people who were reading it at the time would have understood and seen. So the people at this time, they're in captivity, right? We don't know exactly how long they've been in captivity, but we can assume it's probably been a little while. Um, they were warned time and time and time again that, look, guys, this is going to happen if you don't get your act together. And there were prophets upon prophets beforehand that were saying, this the captivity is going to happen if we don't change our ways, if we don't turn back to the Lord. And sure enough, they didn't. 
Time and time and time again, they were warned. Time and time and time again, they turned to other gods. They turned to their own ways. They turned to their own desires. And here we are. They're in this Babylonian captivity. They're there through a very brutal nature. In the process of coming into captivity, this Babylonian army comes and they raise the city of Jerusalem, their hometown, the place where the temple of God is. We can assume that most people who are in captivity at this time have seen friends and family killed before their very eyes. They've lost dear loved ones. They are now in a foreign place where they're worshiping other gods that are obviously not the God that is part of their identity as Jews. They're in new homes. They don't understand the culture. They're learning just how bloodthirsty this dictator can be as he sets up 90-foot-high golden statues. Sorry, that's not 90 feet high. It's like way taller than that. Um, But setting up these statues and saying, if you don't bow down, you're going to get thrown into the fire. If you don't observe our ways, we're throwing you to the lion's den. The rulers are against the Jews and are oftentimes looking for ways to come at them and get rid of them. It's a hostile environment, y'all. In addition to that, this is the second captivity that the Jewish culture has seen happen. So the Jewish uh, culture had been divided if y'all know uh, this part of history. There was the tr- uh, kingdom in the north, Israel, and the one in the south, Judah, where Jerusalem was their capital. Israel had already been taken into captivity 150 years ago. 150 years ago, they went into captivity. They have not come out yet. You think that these uh, uh, Jews in Judah had noticed that? Absolutely, they have. They've seen for 150 years, they're gone. And in fact, today, we oftentimes refer to those 10 tribes that were part of the kingdom of Israel as the lost tribes, the 10 lost tribes, because they just kind of disappeared. They kind of just blended into the culture around them. They were never restored after that captivity. These Jews are probably thinking the same thing's going to happen to us. Oh my gosh, 150 years, they're still not back. Now we're going into captivity? We're done for. Our cultural identity is gone. We're just going to become Babylonians, and that's it. And we're going to have to worship their gods. We're going to have to do all these things that are foreign to us, that are not part of who we are. I mean, talk about grieving a loss. Talk about fear. Talk about just not knowing what's going to happen. Hopelessness. Helplessness. That's the context into which Ezekiel is prophesying. When he brings this to them, they are in a place of despair. They are in a place where they have no hope. Many of them are probably even thinking, what if God has abandoned us forever? What if he's just done with us? So what does Ezekiel say? He comes to him with this weird cryptic vision about bones, right? You're fearful. You don't know what's going to happen. You just want answers. You want someone to say, we're going to save you. And he comes to him with a vision about bones. I mean, seriously, right? Now, bones are significance there. At the time, the Jews, they had a saying um, when they said, my bones are all dried up. That was an idiom at the time. It's just going to go over our heads because we don't use this phrase anymore. But for them, that saying was saying, we're hopeless, we're helpless, we're desperate. So as Ezekiel is seeing this, prophesying over this, sharing this vision, you can be sure that the symbolism of dry bones is not lost on the Jews who are hearing it. They're like, we get that. This is meant to evoke emotion. When they see dry bones, 
It is a feeling, an emotion of desperation, of fear, of sadness, of loss, of grief. And then God has the nerve, right, in this vision to come to Ezekiel and say, look, look at these dry bones. Ezekiel would have known full well what they meant, what they symbolized. And he says, can they live? And Ezekiel, in my opinion, takes the most cop-out answer here. He goes, oh, sovereign Lord, you know. <laughs> He's like, I'm not committing to a yes or a no. And honestly, I wouldn't either. Because I'd be like, uh, they're dead. Like, these bones are dead. They're scattered. Not only are they scattered, they're just forgotten. It's like they're just on the land. How in the world are these going to live again? And Ezekiel's like, I'm not falling for this trick question. I'm just going to answer, God, you know. <laughs> and God in that moment says, all right, I want you to speak. I want you to prophesy. I want you to speak life over these bones and tell these bones what to do. Now, imagine you're in Ezekiel's shoes. And God's telling you, hey, look at these dead guys. Look at these bones that there's no hope for. Now, I want you to speak something that is contrary to nature, contrary to your emotions, contrary to everything you are feeling and seeing and reasoning out right now. And I want you to speak life into them. If I'm in his shoes, I'm thinking, huh, yeah, right. <laughs> this is just going to make me look foolish. If I say these things out loud, it's just going to be a big joke on me because they're, they're gone. I can't do this. No matter what I speak, I cannot bring these bones back to life. But Ezekiel seems to have a bit more faith and a bit more confidence in God than I think I probably would in that moment. And he does exactly what God says. He prophesies breath and life. Now, breath, oftentimes throughout Scripture, signifies the Spirit. And we see at the very beginning of this passage that the, passage that the Spirit is at work from the very beginning. And he prophesies this, speaks this over these bones. And can you just imagine the tension of saying these things and just staring at the bones? And just thinking, well, joke's on me. <laughs> this didn't work. And even if it were only a couple seconds, I can just imagine it would have felt like hours sitting there and waiting. Is this going to work? Is God going to move? Is he going to do what I hope he does, what he says he's going to do? And then seeing those bones start to rattle and move a little bit. And they start to just clump together. And they start to rise up and they have tendons and ligaments and muscles. And they become these people in front of you. These dead, dry bones become people as you're sitting there staring at them. And all you did was speak. And there's something so powerful about those words that the Holy Spirit uses and then infuses himself into these people. And before you know it, you're staring at this great army of people. And I, I want to stop here for a moment because this is just so interesting to me. At one point in this passage, before he breathes life back into him, you realize we've got like a zombie army out in front of him, right? It's like he's built all these people up, but there's no breath in them. Anyways, side note, I thought it was really interesting the first time I read through, and I was like, oh my gosh, there's a zombie army in the Bible. Um, <laughs> that's besides the point, because he doesn't leave it there, does he? He then says, prophesy the breath over them. And the Holy Spirit floods over them and breathes life into them. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole army of Israelites brought back from the dead, not just like dead, been gone for a couple minutes, and you hit them with a couple of paddles, and they jump back to life. But I mean, been dead and gone for a long time. 
And then he carries on. If that's not enough, he carries on in verse 12. And he goes even beyond just bringing him back to life. And he says, Therefore prophesy and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am about to open your graves and will raise you from your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people, I will place my breath in you and you will live. I will give you rest in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will act, declares the Lord. So he goes on as if it wasn't enough to bring a bunch of dead bones back to life. He then, he's like, I'm going to lay this out for you, clear. This isn't just about these bones, this is about you. I'm going to raise you from your graves. I am working on your behalf. I am telling you that I have spoken and I will act. I am going to do what I say I'm going to do. And this is just a visual of what that's going to look like. It's symbolic of it. It's a message of deliverance, of promise. Now, if you're these people lost, feeling like you're forgotten, feeling like God isn't looking out for you. And then all of a sudden someone comes to you with this message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of we are not forgotten. We are not lost forever. God is promising to bring us back to our land, a land that symbolizes to them so much more than what land often symbolizes to us. Because that land was their home. It is where the temple was. It is where God resided in their culture. And he's saying, I'm bringing you back. I will do this. So that's all fine. Good and dandy, right? We can just wrap a little bow on that and just be like, sweet. They're saved. It's done, right? Not really. Because the fact is, they're receiving this message and they're still in captivity. It's not like in prophesying this and seeing this vision, that all of a sudden the people are like, we're saved. We're home. We're happy. We've got everything we ever wanted. No, they're still living under the rule of a bloodthirsty king. They're still living in a province that is foreign to them. They're still being told to worship gods that are not their gods. They still don't see the light at the end of the tunnel because they're like, we're still here and I don't know the way home because we're stuck and we're basically being held prisoner here. So what do we do with that? First of all, what do they do with that? And second of all, what do we do with that? Because we're in a similar boat, right? Sure, we're not captives in Babylon, thankfully. I'm really thankful for that. But we're also living in this in-between time where Jesus has already come. That's part of what we celebrate with Advent. Jesus has come, and we remember each year that he has come, and he has conquered. He has defeated death and sin once and for all, and invited us into his kingdom, which we are now able to be members of. We are able to be a part of his body because of what he's done. Kind of like I asked you at the beginning, does that mean we're happy all the time? Does that mean all the tears are gone? Does that mean all the bad things just stop? I mean, one quick glance at any news site, and you'd be like, nope. The bad stuff hadn't stopped any assessment of your own life over the course of a year or a week or a day, and it's pretty easy to see we're not home yet. So what do we do with that? How do we handle that tension of the fact that God has promised? 
God has given us a message of deliverance, not just for them, but for us too. We have the second coming of Christ to look forward to. We know there's going to be a day when all this will be washed away and we'll be with him forever. But it's not yet. So I think there's two things we can pull out of the text. You may have noticed there were some words that were thrown around a lot in that text. One of them is the word prophesy or prophesied or some form of that word. The other is this phrase that we see in that second passage. Um, it says, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So I want to I make a couple of suggestions about how we deal with this. Because I think it's the same way that God was helping them cope with this at the same time. First thing is we know. We must know. We must know that the Lord is the Lord. Now it'd be really easy for me to stand up here and be like, just believe. I mean, come on guys, just believe. That's not practical, right? <laughs> it's not like you just, okay, let me will that, let me just believe. But no, it's, it's not a passive knowing. It's not a passive believing. It is an active belief. What I want to say and challenge y'all to do is what he's challenging them to do here. Every time he uses that phrase, it is in the context of him moving first. God is doing something, and then he says, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Same thing's happening today, y'all. If we are active in this process of knowing, if we are active in looking around us, remembering the promises that have already been fulfilled, looking at ways that he's moving in the day in, the day out, meeting as communities, remembering together the stuff that God has delivered us from, remembering together the stuff that God is doing right now. In doing that and looking at how God is moving, we come to know him. We come to know his goodness. We come to know the fact that he is constantly doing what he says he's going to do. Fulfilling these promises that from the beginning of Scripture throughout now, he is in the process of working through. And we see that as we look at our own lives, as we look at Scripture and how he's fulfilled them there, as we look at our friends' lives, our community's lives, as we share them together as a church. So that's the first thing I want to throw out there as a way for us to combat this feeling of hopelessness of we're not there yet, what do we do with this? We know. We must actively know that the Lord is who he says he is. Second thing is we speak, or in this case, it says prophesy. Now what is prophesying? If I were to distill it down into just a basic definition, it's speaking what God tells you to speak. It's speaking the word of the Lord. Y'all, we can do the same thing today. We speak. We learn to speak. Because I can almost guarantee it, this week we're all going to come in some situation, encounter some person that just, it, it doesn't jive with us. It's not a situation we'd want to be in. We can become unhappy. We can become bitter. We can look at it with a negative point of view. And we can just say, Forget that. Life's awful. It's terrible. This person's awful. I just want them to leave me alone. I mean, I've thought that probably multiple times over this past week, if I'm going to be completely honest with you. But in this case, what does Ezekiel do? What does God call him to do? He's in the midst of a hopeless place where there is no life. It is all death. It is all despair. And he says, speak life. Speak truth. Speak my words over these people, over this scenario, 
And look what happened. Came back to life, right? The very thing that he could have sat there and pouted and despaired, like I probably would have. Nothing would have happened. Yet he chose to do what God told him to do, to speak life over these things. And we can do the same things, y'all, in our lives. When we encounter adverse scenarios, people we'd rather not be around, we can choose to curse or we can choose to bless. And y'all, in blessing, it's not just words that we're speaking. It's not just a change of attitude. But when we truly choose to speak the words of God, when we speak Scripture, when we speak what we know is true of Him over people and scenarios, He comes into those places. It is a prayer of invitation to Him. It is saying, God, I give you the right to rule in this scenario over this person, over this relationship I have. And it is amazing. Now, I don't want to lead you astray. Because don't hear me say that, oh, if I go into this negative situation, I just speak truth and speak life, this all of a sudden going to become better, right? Man, that'd be nice if that was the case. But it's not always that way. Sometimes we don't see the fruits of the life and the blessing that we speak over things, that we speak over people and scenarios. That shouldn't stop us from doing it. Because, y'all, we're playing the long game. We as Christians are playing the long game. That goes so against the grain of our culture, where we think, I'm out for me right here, right now. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of my family and those nearest me. And whatever goes beyond that is kind of out of my control, and I'm not going to worry about it. No, when we are called into the body of Christ, we are playing the long game. And the life we speak, it may not impact us today, it may not impact us a year from now, but y'all, we are speaking God's presence into the world around us. And whether we see it or not, that is what we're called to do, right? To be lights in this world, to invite God into every crack and crevice and dark corner of this world. And when we choose to use our words to speak, to prophesy, I know that may seem really weird to some of y'all to think, oh, was that prophesying? But when we do that, we are spreading the light of Christ. We are spreading a joy that can only be found in him and not in circumstantial happiness. See, all that brings us back to Advent today. Today we're celebrating joy. We remember what joy is and the joy that only Christ can bring because let's be honest, we can't manufacture this joy on our own. It's a choice, but it is completely dependent on God as well. And when we choose to turn to God in every scenario, good and bad, that is where we begin to find that joy. It may not be an overnight thing. It may not be an instant just gratification, but we begin to discover what joy looks like as we invite him in to each of these situations. So as we take communion, as the worship team comes back up here today, that's what I want to invite us to remember as we come up to this table as we take the crackers, as we take the juice, as we remember the body of Christ, we remember that he came to spread joy. He came to bring hope where there was no hope, to bring light to a dark place. Yeah, let's leave it with that.